0: There was is, there is some story. I have so many notes. Uh, it's, it's funny because I'm a Star Wars nerd uh, and uh, it's sci-fi. And uh, one of the things that you hear a lot in Star Wars is that rebellions are built on hope. And hope was the word that you used for how your mom survived. That was her ammunition to survive. It also sounded like when your dad needed hope the most is when he found your mom. So there was like a full circle for your family involving hope. Which must have been a really hard commodity for that time.
1: Absolutely, absolutely.
0: Uh, I'm wondering: does anybody else, before we get into questions, just reactions, just reactions? Does anybody like what do you think? Like, uh, what do you what do you think? Do you do you guys have? Uh, what were your emotions? Go ahead.
2: As someone who has had World War Two as a topic in all of my history classes for elementary, middle school, high school, it's crazy to hear what like really, really went down the the gritty stuff that they do a lot of teach in public schools. Because none of that stuff I heard how, I know it was crazy, crazy. But like what you said, like just broke my heart. Um, most key stuff. Did anybody
0: else feel heartbroken at any points? What, what was it for you people? What was it? What was the moment that broke your heart?
2: Almost every part.
0: Almost every part? Does anybody have anything
2: specifically? Go ahead. It's basically like almost the whole thing as well. I think her grandparents when he tried helping them oh the perfect uh, for me it was probably the part where um she got the tad went after her the, her mom she called
0: she called that three miracles. Did you hear her reference that as three miracles? yeah, I heard like seven I heard like seven like I'm wondering do like pe seven people yeah, I know I know but but I'm still well for her to be here. I'm wondering if, like, oh, did the orange do something to prepare? <laughs> like, like, what was it? Uh You, who else? Uh, go ahead. The part that really broke my heart is when uh, your uncle, her uncle, just gave up on the on the wall there he's so full. Is this the same uncle that was buried alive?
1: No, that one survived.
0: That one survived. So this person was buried.
1: My uncle Max. Yeah, they made him dig a pit. Yep. And then they made him lie in it, and then they took heavy stones, covered him up. And at night, my mom and my aunt snuck out and dug him up.
0: And he survived.
1: Survived.
3: Um, for me, it was when um the 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 I forgot her name, but the the little girl, Sesha, yes. she for like the guy um let her out of the bus wagon, yeah.
0: yeah she was all alone. Sesha um. I, 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 there was a, there was a large family. S- Sesha is your aunt? Was
1: My aunt was Roja, Rose. Okay. Yep. And uh, Ro- Rose's daughter was Sesha, Celine.
0: So Sesha's your first cousin?
1: Sesha's my first cousin. She's alive and well and lives in Belgium.
0: You're, Sesha's still alive. This is somebody who was...
1: She's 10 years older than
3: I am, I think. So she's in her 80s.
0: Shout out to, shout out to Sesha. <laughs> uh, who survived this experience?
3: For me, it was um, listening to all the punishments that your family to go through.
2: So, one of my favorite movies of all time is called The Pianist, which is basically um, about basically what you described—like Jewish people in as this famous Jewish pianist during the Holocaust in Poland. Uh, I was wondering if you've seen it. If you have, like, do you relate to any of any of it or like any movie adaptation of? The Holocaust.
1: Oh, wow. Um, I have not seen The Pianist. Is on my list, but I'll tell you to be truthful. I have a tough time watching Holocaust stuff. My stomach starts tying itself up in knots and just churning. And I, we started watching on Netflix, um, Transatlantic about rescuing Jewish artists and writers, and I watch one episode then I have to wait like a week before I could stand to watch another one. The movie i really liked well there were two it was defiance yeah um where they uh, some brothers actually hid out in the woods mm-hmm. and got quite a lot of people there and they had schools and hospitals that was wonderful and i liked one that won the oscar one year life is beautiful it was a very sanitized experience at Auschwitz that you see but it was still such a beautiful movie. And when the, uh, I think he was the actor and the director, won the Oscar, he was so excited that he ran across the tops of the seats to get on stage to get his Oscar. So I've seen a couple. I've also saw seen Sophie's Choice, which was very hard.
0: When she says sanitized, it reminds me of when... Uh... Who one of one of you was talking about studying in school and how the, it, it was very different. It reminds me of that. It seems like it seems like a lot of the history books were sanitized. And I know like, I, I had mentioned earlier, I'm not trying to take the spotlight away. I'm trying to put the spotlight on, but but I'm also relating to it with the kind of experience that the Tainos had and how sanitized the history books have been celebrating people like Columbus. And in an alternate world, in an alternate reality, I think the same thing could have happened had World War II turned out differently. When you when you talk about uh, the emotions and watching some of those art pieces, I can only imagine the emotions of a historian trying to do the, what was the, the walk, the mile, the march. I can imagine a historian being fascinated uh, and also feeling dread from an experience like that. But given your personal close connections what were your emotions when you did the march and, and saw the chamber and everything that your mom had been through firsthand? I imagine it was different for you than somebody who's just interested in history.
1: Yeah, the March of the Living uh, in 2010, I went with my husband and then my son and his wife live in London. So they said, we will come to and support you. Um... We went to Auschwitz first and it had taken, I was, I had just retired, so I was like 60 something. And it had taken me all those years to get up the courage to go to Auschwitz and see it in person. Um, and the, it was just terrible. And I am not a drinker at all, but that night after having been to Auschwitz, my husband got me some Baileys <laughs> and I, I basically chug-a-lugged it. I was like, it was so hard, but the march itself, there were 7,000 people from all over the world, mostly high school juniors. And we marched from Auschwitz to Birkenau, the sister camp, which is a couple of miles. And it for me, it was a take back the night kind of experience. You tried to kill us and you failed.
3: So that part was actually wonderful. What has surviving the Holocaust taught you about your life from like your mom?
1: It has taught me that hatred is evil. That when people open the door to hate, only bad things happen. That we all need to have tolerance and understanding and love and compassion for one another. It's also taught me that what's important in life is not material things. It's people, family, friends, co-workers, whatever. I I would say those are the biggies
3: for me.
0: All right, um, what was it like growing up with like, with your mom's trauma? Like growing up and hearing what she told you?
1: You know, it was very difficult. My parents were wonderful people. They never yelled at me. They were never mean to me. They were nothing but loving and giving, maybe a little too overprotective. But it was very difficult growing up in a house where people had suffered so much. A book I read said that the Holocaust was like the dust in the room. You could never get away from it or there was a metaphor about a giant tree in the living room, and that was the Holocaust. To look at your parents and to know that people have treated them worse than we treat our pets, and how much they suffered and how sick they were, it was very difficult.
3: Um, another question is, what would you do if you were in your mother's shoes in this situation?
1: You know, that's a great question. Question and I think all of us who are the child of survivors, we're called second generation, probably have wondered if we would have survived or managed as well. And I don't really think so. I mean, my mother was incredibly brave. I I think I would have died of fright really early on. Um, and that's what I hear from friends of mine that are also second generation. We have serious doubts about our ability to have survived. So these people were... St- when you figure that 6 million people died and 80,000 lived, you get an idea of how few, few people actually made it.
0: Can I ask the group, um, as we're hearing the story, I'm thinking a lot about it as... I. I'm trying to imagine it from the way she's telling it, from that perspective, if this happened to my mother. Uh, did anybody else kind of think about that? Like, man, if my mom was in a situation like this? There's another perspective, though, that that question kind of made me think about is, is would I be able to survive this? Did anybody think about that? And did anybody say, I would just die? Did anybody?
3: Yeah. So, dear, right I would just die. Yep. Uh, so, when I, then...
0: That's a really hard thing to come to to terms with. Uh, We're
2: gonna go with- um, My question relates to what he asked to us. In media that depicts the Holocaust, do you feel like it depicts it fairly, like accurately, all the brutality and everything?
1: No, you can't. I know. You really, really can't.
2: And my other thing is, which movie or uh, thing on the Holocaust do you feel like depicts it the most accurate out of all of them, even if it's not
0: all completely accurate so far the movie the the questions have just been about movies but like i feel like i get it because i feel like how else can you guys relate other than things that you've seen and your history books aren't doing it justice so you're looking for what does it justice like where can i see the accurate
1: yeah i don't know if i've ever seen a movie and schindler's list to some extent
0: this yeah. is that was wendy uh hi wendy hi. wendy is uh wendy is with the uh, executive director of the Sandra Bornstein
4: Holocaust Education Center,
0: which everybody should know about uh, for our audience, can they find out more information about that? Is there like a website or uh... online BornsteinHolocaustCenter.org.
4: dot yeah. org? Holocaust Center Providence. You'll find it.
0: Holocaust Center Providence. You'll find it. Do you guys have a social media like a handle?
4: We do. Uh, just Forenstein Center Center dot org on um Forenstein Holocaust Center on Instagram.
0: Okay, and that's where you guys can find out. Uh, a lot more stories like what we're learning from Lillian. Thank you for chiming in. I actually had another question for you later. Uh, if Can I just add
4: four what? students in Rhode Island went on March there in Poland and Israel? Now they went on March of the Living
0: last week. Are were they? Are these all Jewish students?
4: The four students are Jewish. Yes. Um, my dream is to have an interfaith group of teens, Jewish and non-Jewish teens, go. That's what I'm trying to do at the center. It that's a long, that's my vision. So it'll take a little bit, but really, that's the start.
0: I know we're I know we're a goofy organization, like I said earlier, we're uh, tech nerds and gamers and stuff. But uh, some of the people in this ring just came back from Japan with me. This is these are the kind of experiences that are on the table for the work that we're doing. I think I'd love to continue that conversation with you at some point. Uh, question. By the way, uh, due to the personal nature of the conversation, I know it's intense. I'm gonna go to you for a question. It is fair to pass today. Other days, I'm going to be like, how dare you? Uh, today, if you're like pass, I'm just going to keep it moving right along. So uh, question. Yeah. Um, so
2: when you, you send out when they were best about the camp, so there was two lines, one for who would live and one who would die. I want to know how is it decided who would live and who would die? Did they know
0: that they're fit in a specific ride when it happened?
1: They would look at the people and decide if they were in good enough condition to be worked to death. If they looked like they weren't going to last more than a tiny little bit, they would just kill them right off. But if they could get some work out of them first, they would do that and they would die just a little bit later.
2: Question. My question is like, what was your reaction when you found out that all of this happened to your family? Like, was it, like, was it, like, a lot to take in?
1: It was an incredible amount to take in. Uh, think about it. Of course, you're, you're teens now, so you're at a point in your life where you may not be getting along that well with your parents and having issues, but think about somebody treating your mother like dirt, you know, like worse than we treat any of our family pets or anything. Like
0: shooting. It's oh, you describe, horrible. You described uh multiple men shooting
1: at my mother at your mother yeah i mean it's it's horrible they my parents tried to be very careful about how much they told me but you know from the get go um i don't know if you've ever seen it but my mother had the tattoo on her arm a for auschwitz and a number they're basically branded like cattle so i always knew she had that My mom was always sick. She had nightmares. Basically all these survivors had PTSD, but it wasn't recognized back then. So I always knew something really bad had happened. I didn't start getting the details till I was maybe around nine. And then they were very bit by bit by bit, because it was very, very hard. And even though I talk to you guys now, I can feel that you know I'm, I'm getting upset.
0: We're we're feeling it too, and that's not our mom, you know. I so I I honestly couldn't even imagine to relate, and yet we can empathize. I had like a, a weird one from yours is always weird. The last one was hilarious. I don't, <laughs> I don't remember. What it was that. something like woodworking. What do? And I was, I was like, are you? What <laughs> well, I was like, I. For the Russian thing, for the convincing, why, why did they put people in piles of animal crap? They tortured your dad. Why did they
1: do that? Well, they wanted him to accept Russian citizenship. And they were basically pissed off that he said no. And so that's what they had available. They didn't want to kill him because then he would be no use. They just wanted to try to be more convincing so that he would say yes and then they'd have him for the rest of his life. And he was a young man at that point. Um But he knew enough to say no. He wouldn't have been let out of Russia.
2: Right, so was your, like, this uh same, kind of the same thing as the last question, growing up, like, in school, that did that affect... Like with what your mom told you, did it affect anything? Or like did being Jewish affect like your school life or just personal life?
1: Yeah, um, there were enough Jewish kids in my school that I didn't feel like alone in terms of that. But I was the only one, as far as I know, in the whole building whose parents had were survivors like that, whose mother had been at a concentration camp who had a tattoo on her arm, like she was branded like cattle. Um, so I ended up, I, I was very shy, didn't help that it was chubby and wore glasses, but, um, it, it was difficult. It's hard to escape the reality of what happened. Like, um, second generation, other people like me, we never talk back to our parents, believe it or not, never because you could never say anything mean to people who had suffered so much.
3: So that kind of thing, yeah. How was your mother affected after this traumatic event, physically and mentally though? Well, physically,
1: she almost died. She had tuberculosis, it was fatal at the time. She spent the entire year from when I was two to three, and my dad took care of me, in a sanitarium um, trying to be cured of her TB and she lucked out that she was one of the first people in the entire world to be given sulfur drugs, which turned out to be miraculous. Um, But she was sick over and over and, you know, most survivors wanted to replace family members. So they wanted children. So. I was, by way of a miracle, she wasn't supposed to have me, but she wanted to have more children. And every time she tried, she almost died and she'd be in the hospital for months. So finally, the doctor said to her, live to enjoy the one you have. Uh, But emotionally, you know, she had nightmares for a very long time, that kind of thing. They were very protective and overprotective of all their loved ones, and they would do anything for a family member, no matter
3: what the cause. So it's safe.
0: In what ways have you been affected by anti-Semitism? And do you feel like that's something that the world is recovering from and anti-Semitism is over?
1: You know, personally, I've been very fortunate. I I haven't had too many anti-Semitic remarks directed at me. I do not think things are are getting any better at all. I think they're getting worse again. Um, During the last president's tenure, a lot of the speeches that were given were remarkably similar to speeches that Hitler delivered. Very much so. Um, So, currently, most of us who are Jewish are living in fear at the dramatic rise in anti-Semitism and the fear that it could happen again. You always live with the knowledge that it could happen again. And somebody, also second generation, told me that any Jew in America who doesn't have an active passport is an idiot. Um, So I think we live in a certain state of tension or anxiety um, but none of, not so much of it has been directed straight at me I
0: have a so I have a question and and um, we have four guests with us uh, Lillian Jeannie Wendy and Susan uh, and and anybody can answer uh, but I am I'm am absolutely curious because of the anti-semitism that we talked about offline uh, that is really big with some of our favorite stars an amazing basketball player, talent, uh, an amazing rapper. I won't listen to him anymore, but I can't deny like, uh, his, his gold digger track or some of the other tracks. It seems like it's bubbling. It seems like anti-Semitism is bubbling and it makes me wonder generationally post-war, what was the worst time for anti-Semitism? Is, is this something that's peaking again? or is it something that is a constant and we just don't see it as much?
1: I think there's always been anti-Semitism, and sadly, there will always be anti-Semitism. Ever since we were accused of killing Christ, there has been anti-Semitism. However, it kind of ebbs and flows. Like right before the war was a period of relative quiet. In countries like Germany, Jews thought they were assimilated citizens. I think that the political forces of the recent past have contributed greatly to the rise of outward anti-Semitism, that people who hate were encouraged to climb out from under their rocks. Yeah, not just anti-Semitism.
2: What was matter? I mean, you guys... It's just a lot of hate out there. A lot of hate out there.
4: If Hitler was alive today, we would all be killed. Every one of us. Because we're not what he wanted. What he um, fantasized would be, you know, the perfect world. If you were Jewish, if you had brown skin, flax skin, if you were gay, if you were what he said was a gypsy, all fine.
0: We, uh, we have different extremists leaders now have any of those given you a moment where you were like oh shit here we go again that's genie genie's <laughs> Je- chiming in Jeannie's saying yes
3: growing over my family it was always my parents were both survivors but i can remember as a child and they, they wanted to be american so we had thanksgiving and the discussion was always great happen here and half the table said it couldn't happen here. This is America, and half the table said it could happen anywhere, where condition. You know, cover conditions are right, and people begin to get scapegoated, and um, people have a lot of grievances, and they blame other people for their grievances. So I feel I will think back to those childhood days, and I think. It could happen here, it can happen anywhere, any place where people feel that they have grievances. And during like, the, oh, sorry, no, no, it's much easier to blame other, it's much easier to blame other people than to take, right? you know, communal responsibility for.
1: During the Trump presidency, many of the speeches
3: resembled Hitler's speeches very closely. And in Charlottesville, yeah, when well, we're carrying the torches, a Jews will not replace us. The whole replace theory that is getting a lot of airtight, you know, a lot of... There are also
4: hate groups here. India Point Bridge in Providence, where they do the fireworks every summer. Big, big, big sign, Jews kill Jesus. That was a few months ago. There were flyers in Warwick, flyers in Providence on the street I work on. The street we're all on all the time, recruiting. Young white males between 18 and 27, 24, you know, they keep, they're recruiting for hate.
0: We talk about how, whether or not this can happen again. And again, some of us just came back from Japan, a Steambox trip, a Steambox trip that was supposed to happen, if not for the pandemic, the Highlander students and I, this podcast was supposed to go and visit, actually CF members too, we were supposed to go visit kids in cages because right now there are kids in cages, not just in 2019, but that continues now. So I know we talk about Trump as an extreme leader and we all know we can make a list a mile long of what kind of bullshit this guy is on, but we have new leaders now, people that were elected to fix the Trump shit, but they're still kids in cages. So if we talk about can this happen now, I'm not likening it to the horrors that your mom went through, but I'm saying this, this, this shit is happening now to a smaller degree and to another extent And uh, it's people who probably look less like you, but more like us. These kind of things are still happening. And not only do we need the hope that Lillian talked about, but we actually, we got to do something about. I'm hoping that Lillian can come in and uplift some of you because my generation kind of has kids in cages. And I'm hoping that your generation can do better. I'm looking at you guys while I say that, but I'm talking to the audience at home as well.
1: Let's throw in a comment. Uh, Ellie Wazell, who wrote Night, which many English classes have had, to read, basically said, silence helps the oppressor, not the oppressed. That we must all speak out against hatred, intolerance. Silence is, if you're not part of the solution, you're part of the problem. Silence is complicity. But it's easier to be silent. Yeah.
0: We know, and we know that it's dangerous. We know that it's dangerous to run your mouth and to stand up for justice because you're going to lose friends at some point, but hopefully you'll make some new ones that are like minded. Lewis, what's your question for Lillian? You felt
3: promotional?
0: Like, what? One specific, one. like over the years, as we obviously talked about the trauma that your mom endured and that your dad endured. How has that affected you growing up after the age of nine when you're hearing these things?
1: Well, I, I read a book by a second-generation person, which is what my generation is called, wrote about growing up, and he said the Holocaust was like the dust in the room. It was always there. And he used the metaphor about a giant tree running through the middle of the living room, and that was the Holocaust. I... I feel like my whole life is in some way had to do with the Holocaust. No, you you can't escape it. Um, And I didn't know any other children of Holocaust survivors when I was growing up. I, I went to a regular public school, very mixed bag, diverse. Nobody was like me. I was the only one whose mother had been tortured. And so it kind of makes you feel alone, you know, to a certain extent. You're in a category all by yourself. But it has also made me an advocate as much as I can for others in need, recognizing that we all have to help each
3: other to get through stuff.
0: Here you are sharing that story and not being silent.
3: Where, uh, like, you lost hope, and might like remembered your mom, your mother's
1: story, and like, uh, your hope was restored. So many times. So many times. And my daughter too. I, I have uh, uh, two kids, son and a daughter. Um, and especially my Sarah will say every time life has been really hard, where something bad has really happened, she says. If grandma could survive what she survived, I can survive this. And I feel have felt the same way many, many times in difficult moments. Somebody's illness or the death of a friend or whatever. We used to call my mother the rock. She was so strong and we we tried to live up to that standard. In
0: 1961, Lillian's 13 years old. Yep. In 1961, Lillian's 13 years old and... Her hormones are kicking in and stuff starts to happen and uh, she looks at her mom and she says something awful because she doesn't want to do the laundry today or something like that. Did you ever have that moment where it was like, oh, my life is too rough and then you forget who you're talking to?
1: I never, ever, ever gave my parents a hard time. You could not do that to people who went through what they went through. Even as a small child, I'll just yeah, I would be in bed at night and I couldn't fall asleep and I was scared. I never went and bothered.
0: Is that in itself a lot of pressure?
1: Well, it's certainly difficult.
0: I'm not trying to say your life is comparably difficult to theirs.
1: No. Yeah.
0: But I'm wondering if that's a lot to live up to.
1: Yeah, and um. The other part of it is from, from what I've read that a lot of white middle-class kids grow up having a pretty secure childhood. Nothing bad really happens. If you're the child of Holocaust survivors, you know, from day one, bad things can happen. And that colors your entire world view.
2: So you told us a little bit about Russian soldiers with your dad. I would want to know how did how did they add when they liberated Auschwitz? How you, when your mom got to meet them?
1: You know, when whatever soldiers liberated, whoo, liberated whatever camp, the shock of seeing the prisoners emaciated, piles of dead bodies in striped pajamas, like it was like overwhelming for the for the soldiers. They were all very, very kind and wonderful to the poor, starving wretches. The terrible part was like the American soldiers, for example, would have chocolate bars on them and give them to the prisoners who hadn't eaten in such a long time that they couldn't digest the food and they died cause of the chocolate. Um, but they were overwhelmingly kind to my mother.
2: Yeah. That's what I've heard a lot. That
1: Yeah. Very, very kind. That's yes.
2: why so when you said that they use your dad as canon father, that was actually something I'd never heard before, that they used Polish
1: soldiers. Well, that's the officials of Pi, not the everyday average soldier.
2: Two different, like, effects on two different types of people. Sure.
1: Just the mix of
0: all the stories we've heard, that <laughs> this one almost just grazes by us, right? Like, like these people uh, were starving, and they're given chocolate bars, and they were so starving that the chocolate bars kill them. Like... How deeply depressing. It's like sad because it was already sad. It's, it's a never-ending pit of sadness.
3: Welcome. <laughs> Welcome to our what? world. Welcome to <laughs> curiousness. <laughs> stop.
4: No, no, stop.
3: Is that what they said? No.
4: <laughs> so I've been the- at my job for about a year and a half. Yeah. And um, I've heard Lillian's story many times. I learned something new every time because of all of you, the questions that are asked. First of all, I'm very impressed by all of your maturity. I have high school kids, your maturity and your questions. Um, But every story is different. And part of my job is to arrange for survivors and children of survivors to go around to schools, mostly, and to community centers, to churches, to synagogues and tell their story. And that get when I'm having a bad day and Lillian knows us, I've said this. They are my heroes now. And I do not know why I'm so emotional today because I never cry when I'm out. It's really, when you hear these stories, these are, one of you said, this is not in your textbooks. And that's my daughter is a junior in high school. And that's the first thing she said to me the first time she heard a survivor speak. She got in the car with me and she started her car. She said, mom, we don't learn this in school. We don't learn. And what's sad is I could bring in survivors and children of survivors, Every day for the next two weeks that are local, almost two weeks. And every story is awful. Every story.
3: Um, My question was, do you think that there's information that your parents had held from you? I am
1: sure that they only told me a teeny-tiny percentage of what happened to them. I'm absolutely positive. Um, One, to protect me. And two, because it was so hard for them to talk about it. And it was also so hard for me to listen to it. So I didn't pursue it growing up either. So yeah, I'm sure there were tons more. Now I'm sad that I don't know everything. My parents were not Holocaust survivors, but my husband's parents were. And they met by
2: writing letters to each other, just a quick, my father-in-law's parents, my my husband's grandparents were both killed in Auschwitz. And um, my father-in-law was about 17 when he came to this country, they had sponsors, turned around and went to, back to Germany through um, the Army Corps of Engineers. So he joined the military in the United States. He knew English, he knew French, he knew, he knew all these different languages. So he went back there as a 17-year-old, I'm going to find my parents' Well. He never did find his parents. But while he was there, my mother-in-law wrote him letters because somebody said that they knew that this young Walter Froelich was in Europe looking for his parents. My in-laws fell in love through the mail. They never met, but six weeks after he came home from Germany, they were married. And they were married for 60-some-odd years. But the point I'm bringing out is my mother-in-law saved all those letters. And she had someone called an archivist who preserves um, things that are mostly on paper. And she had them cataloged. She never let us read them in her lifetime. We found them in the back of her closet uh, when we were moving her to a a nursing home when she was sick. And the first letter that my father-in-law wrote to my mother-in-law introducing himself he closes and i get so emotion he closes the letter and he says i could go on and on and tell you all of the awful things that i've seen and heard but i won't because now we must live and i get the chills every time and remember he's from germany he wrote in perfect english better than i write so that was my final thought. Now we must live. And I always said, buff. And he was a quiet man. He didn't talk about his experience.
0: That was, uh, this is Susan speaking. Susan is uh, with Highlander Charter. And when we saw some of the anti-Semitism coming up, uh, I went to some of the people at Highlander and I was like, is there, some, is there something that we can do? And they recommended Susan to me. And Susan's been instrumental in connecting me to Wendy and uh ultimately lillian and putting this together thank you susan everybody say thank you susan thank you um thank you you, Willie. uh thank you wendy lillian uh everybody else before we get to closing uh before we get to closing thoughts uh i have to ask about uh the the one story that obviously the story about the mom's line and being switched because of what happened earlier and with the high school bullying situation was amazing uh, the story about the dogs, the three miracles. Uh, the three miracles are are uh, one of the stars of the show. Speaking of shows, your uh, your in laws story Netflix, please get on that I never... because we need we need that story. Uh, but but the one the one story particular was such a a story of chance. Are there any more details around the ninety the ninety nine people who were uh, shot like fish in a barrel, and your mom surviving that scenario? How? How did that happen? Did they run out of bullets? Did nobody think to aim at her? Did they miscommunicate to, in some way?
1: It was a miracle.
2: Why were oranges like
0: $6,000?
1: Well, and because it was after the war. Everything was very expensive. Food was in scarce supply. They hadn't been able to have farms and grow food, you know. Oranges are not native to Poland. They don't grow them there, so it's something you had to import from far away. In a time of crisis right after the war, and was, yeah, it was a lot of money.
0: Did you think her dad was bawling when he pulled up with an orange?
2: <laughs> <laughs> kind of. Pulls up with an orange. Kind of.
0: I mean, it would be something like a.
1: What a romantic gesture, huh?
0: What a romantic gesture. No. I, I think if people want to find out more stories like these, I know I've already done this, uh, but I want to once again direct us back to Wendy Wendy one more time where can people find uh your center so two
4: things Instagram Sandra Warenstein Holocaust Center on Instagram um and we also our website bornsteinholocaustcenter.org we have teen programming for local teens that um I'm going to tell you all about after and even spread the word.
0: All right, so that's where you can find more stories like Lillian's. Lillian, I'm going to come to you for final thoughts in just a second. It looks like you had one more question.
2: Yeah. I I didn't know when I uh, said if this question was asked already, but why do you think they hated Jews?
1: First of all, I think the whole Jews killed Christ thing didn't help. We were blamed for that. And also, so way, way back when, Jews were not allowed to own farms, to own land. And so they ended up becoming the shopkeepers and so then when people didn't have money and they needed food or goods they would get upset with the jewish shopkeepers for not just giving it to them free or charging too much or whatever Um, so the professions the jews were pushed into i think were a big part of the problem
0: do you have any final thoughts for our audience anything that people should know uh, any Anything that you want to leave them with?
1: Well, I would like to leave people with the message that we have to stop hate wherever we find it. We can't sit back and let somebody else do it. We have to stand up and do our part wherever we, wherever we feel it, hear it, see it. We have to say something about it.
0: Before we sat in this room today, there was another group. What's the name of your group? Diversity Talks. Diversity Talks. And uh, if they didn't say it in Diversity Talks, it's just something that I've heard uh, again and again, that we can't just uh, not be racist. We must be anti-racist was what I was going for here. Uh, And I would think that uh, we can't just not have hate. We must have anti-hate in our hearts. We must combat hate when we find hate. We heard amazing, touching stories today. They were definitely misty eyes. Lillian, I really appreciate you sharing these stories. But now that you've shared these stories, as Susan said, now we must live. Everybody, please give it up for Lillian Burke. This has been another podcast from my homies at Highlander Charter School. My homies at Highlander Charter School, please say peace out to the world.
2: Peace out.